Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with three-time World Series champ, Hall of Famer, and former Major League exec, Pat Gillick. All right, let's do this! And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone. And today on the program, I sit down with an old friend of mine. He's been a general manager or team president for the better part of the last 50 years. He's a three-time World Series champion and was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame in 2011. Ladies and gentlemen, Pat Gillick. Pat, thanks for coming on the program. Booney, it's good to be with you. I haven't heard talk to you for a while, but uh, I've heard a lot about your podcast. Well, good. I, I appreciate you coming on. Eagle Scout. You were an Eagle Scout as a kid. The only other person I know, and we had him on the podcast recently, was Albert Bell. He was an Eagle Scout. Tell me how you got into that. Well, I got into the, the Cub Scout, and from the Cub Scout, naturally, we moved ahead to the to the Boy Scouts, and uh, so I did a combination of you know, playing baseball during the spring and the summer, but also being a Boy Scout and, and doing camping. So uh, it was a good experience both ways to, to have the athletic part of my program and also the the friendship with a lot of scouts that I met uh, during that time in the scouting program. And that's not where it ended for you, too. And we'll get to SC in a bit. But in 58, you were part of a uh, national championship team at USC. And after that, you were honored for the uh, – correct me if I'm wrong here. I think I'm right. The Order of Arrows Vigil Honor. Correct? Yeah, that's right. That was uh, another order uh, that I was taken into, uh, the Order of the Arrow, and uh, that was in, in, in 58, the year I graduated from SC. In fact, I was thinking this, this after uh, Jake, I think, graduated from uh, Did Jake or Savannah graduate from SC? Uh, yeah, and for those listening to the to the podcast, Jake's my son. Savannah is the one that went to USC. So it was myself uh uncle aaron you know my brother and uh savannah or se jake was a princeton grad so he's he's he kind of uh he's nose up to us sc guys he he thinks he's a little <laughs> you know in rarer air him and dad you know dad doing the stanford thing they, they just they feel like they're a little above the sc sc uh <clears throat> academics you know what? I mean, I hate to, to get off the subject, but I also know your grandfather quite well when he, when because he scouted me when I was in high school, and uh, he was out of San Diego, I know, and scouted for the Red Sox, and and also Joe Stevenson. So they had a, a good group of scouts out there. Uh, which your grandfather was one of them. Yeah, and I wanted to bring that. I always like talking about Gramps, and, and when I was thinking today, all right, I'm going to do Pat. I was going over, and I'm like, well, he's got it. You know, as long as you've been in the game, you know, and I mentioned it at the top from uh, from from when you finished your minor league career to to almost present day. I mean, you've been you've been in baseball in one way or the other Um, and you had to had to have some interactions with grandpa. You know, me and you were, were partners for a few years in Seattle, but you had to run into Gramps. And like you mentioned, he scouted you uh, when you were coming up. But you, you got a Ray Boone story for me. 
I, I don't have one, but I'm, I'm going to tell you this, and, and not because uh, you're his grandson, but he was he was a top class guy. I'll tell you that they had two of the best uh, scouts at, uh, out on the West Coast. He and Joe Stevenson, who were both were just you know first class people, and uh, maybe some of the people on the podcast don't know it, but um, uh, Joe it was the father of Jerry Stevenson, who pitched in the big leagues, also for the Red Sox, and uh, Jerry's passed away, but. Uh, some good lineage there between the Boons and the Stevensons, I'll tell you. Very cool. Um, born in Chico, California. What was a young? What was it? What was Pat Gillick like as a little kid? Um, well, I, 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 I was. I, I got a picture. I looked at it the other day. I guess it was my fifth birthday, and I was standing there with a, in a baseball uniform with a hat on and a bat on my shoulder. Uh, even though I, I ended up being a pitcher, I did play, you know, outfield at that time. If you didn't pitch and you're a decent hitter, you'd play the outfield. So um, I, I looked at that picture, and I, and I guess I started out early, and I, I don't really recall the picture, but uh, I think it was on my fifth birthday that I had it. Was baseball always it for you? First love, that's what you wanted to do? Well, you know, going back a little bit, my father uh, pitched in the Coast League for about seven, eight years. Uh, uh, my dad was a right-hand pitcher and a left-hand hitter, and I was left and left. But my dad uh, pitched for the San Francisco Seals. He pitched for the Oakland Oaks. He pitched for San Diego in the Coast League. Uh, going way back, uh, 19, like 1928 to 1935. So it was kind of, you know, running in the family. So uh, I, I, that was my main Sport. I played the other two sports, uh, basketball and football, but the, the sport I love was baseball. You're in Sherman Oaks. Uh, you went to Notre Dame High School, and I was noting some some guys that that have graduated from Notre Dame High School. Current guys, Giancarlo Stanton, Terry Donahue went there, Blackjack uh, McDowell went there, and Pat Gillick went there. So you're at Notre Dame High. Um and give me a, give me a little insight to to baseball and at that point you know as a as a kid playing varsity baseball well, you know, you, I was, what's, what's I was, going through your mind? I was a young, uh, when I graduated from high school, I was 16 years old. And so I had an opportunity to, to sign with the Giants and go out and play. But as I said, my 17th birthday wasn't until August and I graduated in June. So I decided to go uh, maybe a year to junior college. So I went up going two years to junior college because I got injured after my first season. And then, you know, as a, um, as a sophomore, I, I transferred. And I was either going to Washington State, Fresno State, or SC, and finally ended up going to SC and uh, spent the 56-57 season and the 57-58 season. As you mentioned at the top of the show, uh, we were fortunate enough to to win the College World Series in uh, 1958. And that was SC. That was was pretty common back then. And and we recently had uh, Jack Del Rio, Freddie Lynn was on the podcast, Anthony Munoz, they all, uh, not only two of them played football, but also played baseball. And the one thing I missed, Pat, um, when I got to SC, and I got to play for Mike Gillespie, who was great, and I enjoyed my time there, but I had just missed the Rod Dato era. He, I think he was removed maybe a year. I got to, I got to know him off the field pretty well. He was still around uh, 
the baseball team quite a bit, you know, in any, any public uh, social events we went to, it seemed like Rod was always the keynote speaker and always, you know, charming the way Rod is, but as a player and, and especially that time in SC where, where it was just a dominant school when it came to baseball, what was it like playing for Rod Dato? It was exciting. Um, I look back on it. It was probably uh, of all the coaches I ran to, you know, both at the amateur and the professional level, he was probably the best fundamental coach uh, that I what I ever had uh, about just teaching fundamentals on the field and how to play the game, uh, how to hit cut off men, how to how to run the bases. He was he was really a, a great coach in that, and he was always very positive, very upbeat guy. Uh, you said very charming, um, and he used to, his favorite saying used to say, uh, "Get loose on your own time." Uh, if we had a three o'clock practice, he was you were supposed to be ready to go at three o'clock. So if you had to take fifteen minutes to warm up, you better show up at two forty-five because you weren't going to uh, warm up on his time. But uh, a great coach. Uh, good, great person, and and somebody that I, I think everyone had confidence in and looked up to uh, during our time at SC. Give me a scouting report on a, on a college Pat Gillick, lefty pitcher. Um, good stuff, good breaking stuff, below average fastball, below average control. So uh, I didn't get to pitch as much as I I, li- I would like to at, at SC and. Uh, uh, Rod always liked guys who threw strikes, and I can't blame him. I got into pro ball and uh, threw a lot more strikes than I did uh, in, in in college. But uh, it was a good experience, and, and I'll tell you, um, the program he, he ran, and as I mentioned, the fundamentals, I was well prepared going into pro ball uh, when I signed with the Baltimore club. Um, I was well prepared to, to enter professional baseball because I had a really strong uh, foundation uh, from, from Rod at SC. You've been to SC recently? See how much it's, it's weird how, uh, you know, even from my time there, I went there and uh, I think my freshman year was 88, but then I went through, uh, you know, my daughter, she went there and it had changed so much last year i took the boys and and uh, my dad and we went to a football game up there and just walking around the campus i mean it's like a new world and and i could only imagine when when you were there in the 50s uh how much different it was even then i know you're a delta kai do you live on frat row yeah i lived on 28th street right okay right off figueroa Right off Figaro, it's still there. It's still there. I remember Delta Chi very well. Um, minor leagues, 59, I think, basically to 63. The Orioles and the Pirates uh, was doing my due diligence. 45 and 30. You had a 3-4 Ernie. And, uh, you know, I'm, the, I'm thinking that's pretty pretty successful minor league career. When you walked away, when you retired, was it your choice or was the writing on the wall for you that, that – you wanted to continue in a different capacity. Obviously it was baseball from, from what your future holds. Um, but, but when you walked away, was it your doing or was it the organization? It was my doing, and um, you know, I decided. I said I'd go five years, and if I could uh, make it to the big leagues in five years, that then I was going to continue on. I didn't. I didn't make that goal, so I decided, uh, you know, to go back to school, and I was going to end up. Uh, hopefully, I was going to e- either be a coach, and so that was at the conclusion of the season, which in those days was like Labor Day of of each year. Uh, I went home and. Uh, 
I got a call from uh, Eddie Robinson, who was the farm director down with the Houston. At that time, it was the Houston Colt 45s. It wasn't the Houston Astros. And he asked me to go to work for him and uh, in the office because I'd known both he and Paul Richards when I was over at Baltimore. And I said, well, let me think about it. And I talked to my father, and my father said that, you know, well, look, these opportunities don't happen, you know, uh, every day. So, you know, you got to give us some strong consideration. So I did. Um, so finally, I, I remember I, wig- I wiggled out of them, if you can believe this. This was... 1963, and I was making like 1500 a month playing um, AAA and AA baseball. So they had offered me 325 a month to go to work. And I came back and said, you know, I've just tried to figure it out. I don't think I can make it on that. I need 350. So the first year I worked, uh, I got made $4,200 for the year. And uh, then I got a raise after that. And so I was down at Houston about 11 years, went to the Yankees for three, part, almost three years. And then I went to Toronto and was up there uh, close to 20 years. Colt 45s, and uh, you end up moving up to the director of scouting. Different Astrodome back then. That was that was kind of it. It was the expansion team, right? I think you had Joe Morgan in the minor leagues. Absolutely. We had Sonny Jackson, Joe Morgan. Uh, they were in the minor leagues. Uh, Cesar Geronimo, Jack Billingham, um, Turk Farrell, Jim Owens, uh, Tommy Helms, Lee May. We, 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 had, a, we had an expansion club, and uh, – you know, it took a while. It took a while for that club to come around, and it was really, uh, you know, it won uh, a division title. I'm not sure of the year, but I was gone by that time, so uh, they hadn't reached the uh, the playoffs for the period that I was there from uh, really '64 through '70 '75. You move over to the Yankees. Um, how is that going from an expansion team? To the New York Yankees, probably the most iconic sports franchise, definitely baseball um, at the time. I think I think you get to the Yankees a year, roughly a year or two after Steinbrenner first buys the team (laughs) and going from the Colt 45s to the Yankees. Steinbrenner's the owner. Uh, What was that like? Well, it wasn't so bad going to the Yankees. I, I, I wanted to get an opportunity, but uh, I really wasn't prepared for George because uh, George uh, had sort of a football mentality, a very impatient guy. Uh, and so consequently, he, they wanted things to happen right now. He had, he had coached a little bit, I believe, at, at Northwestern uh, as a coach. And um, he's he's a guy that that was very impatient. So consequently, it was let's do it now. Let's get it done now. And it was very difficult to to get George to understand that it took time for baseball players to develop. That usually three, four, or five years before they get to the big leagues. So. Um, the difficult thing was was keeping uh, George under control. Gabe Paul was a veteran uh, baseball man. He was a general manager. Tal Smith, who was president and later on president of the Astros, and and also was the assistant GM. So we had good baseball people, but uh, keeping George keeping George at hand was a, a big a big hand for all of us. But uh, it was an interesting time, and uh, and, and it, it prepared me, I think, better to go on to. Toronto and, uh, and, and, you know, with the expansion club there in uh, 1976. 
Yeah, 76 to go to the Blue Jays. You're the vice president of player personnel and another expansive franchise. You started with the Cole 45s. Uh, now you're with the Blue Jays, but in a different role. Um, and I think in 76, they didn't play. I think the first year was 77. You succeed Peter Bavese as the general manager. And uh, what was your first role with the Blue? How hard was it? How hard was it to build a team from scratch, that expansion? It's always interesting to me. It was it was a challenge. And I remember the first time that I met with the owners uh, of the club, um, there were the three three major owners were the Bats Brewery, uh, the Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce, and um, Howard Webster, a private investor. And I met with them, and I said, um, it's going to probably take us 10 years to get to the playoffs, about 10 years to be competitive. And I was really amazed. Um, they were not shocked at all when we, when I made that statement. So consequently, it ended up we got there a little shorter. Uh, our first season, as you mentioned, Brett was 77, and then we got to the playoffs against Kansas City in '85. So uh, it took about eight or nine years to get there. But um, it was a challenge. It was a lot of fun, a lot of hard work. Um, but you know, when we finally got there, and, and then going forward, uh, went in two back-to-back World Series championships. Uh, in Canada, you're, you're based in Toronto, but really uh, when we won those two uh, World Series championships, it was really a victory for for the whole country, from coast to coast, from Halifax to on the east to Vancouver on the west. Uh, we were kind of the team of, the, of those two years, 92-93, but we had certainly a good competition for our neighbors up in Quebec and Montreal. Uh, they had a good ball club, but we were just fortunate enough to, to get into the World Series a couple of years. Yeah, 85 was the first time you, you made it to the playoffs, and 89, you make it again. And, and 89 is an interesting year for me because I've been through a few. Uh, Camden Yards, when it first came to, to pass, was the big deal. You know, uh, Jacobs Field, uh, you couldn't get a ticket for years on end. There's always kind of these historic ballparks. But back then, 89, and I remember I was getting ready to sign professionally. I was still in college. But the Sky Dome opened, and it seemed like – the Blue Jays were the, were the big ticket now, and it was the big deal. You know, it was state-of-the-art, new to everybody, and, and Canada was abuzz with it. Uh, do you rem- did, did it kind of change when Skydome came in 89, the, the culture there in Toronto? Well, you know, it's it's funny, Brett, you brought that up, is that our, our fans, when we started out, I mean, you could, in 1977, you could hear a pin drop in the stadium. Uh, nobody was making any noise. Everybody was quiet. Everybody was <laughs> very respectful. And uh, when we got to 89, uh Things were changed a little bit. It, it was a noisy bunch. We would put forty-five, fifty thousand in into the Sky Dome every night, and so consequently, people weren't sitting on their hands anymore. Uh, they were up yelling and, and cheering because uh, you know it had been we. We had one uh, playoff go in '85, and now we're we were back in '89. So consequently, it was a lot more. Uh, there was a lot more adrenaline pushing that stadium in 89 than there was even in 85. 91 back to the playoffs. And then we we get to what we were discussing earlier, the back-to-back World Series champs. I mean, let alone one, two. Um, man, that had to be an unbelievable time. You went through – you had skippers of Bobby Cox, Jimmy Williams, and then Cito Gaston for the uh, – the, uh, 
World Series years, man, I remember those teams too. You know, I was a young player and it was Robbie and Molitor and Carter and big, big rude that you, you kind of followed you around throughout your career. It seemed like, um, <laughs> you know, Stu and, and you had Clemens over there for a world series. Jack Morris was a part of those teams. Uh, like I said, winning one world series, unbelievable. 92 had to be unbelievable for you, you know, starting in 77, finally came to fruition, but backing it up in 93, it, things you just don't see. The Yankees did it in the late 90s, but but nowadays you, you just don't see those back-to-back. I guess I guess in the middle teens, uh, the San Francisco Giants did it, but they didn't win back-to-back. They won four in the over six years. But back-to-back, uh, was one sweeter than the other, or, or were they just equally just – it's got to be unbelievable. 92 probably was uh... – because I kind of thought at 92, somebody asked how I felt. I said, I felt like we finally got to the top of the the mountain. We were getting going up the mountain in 85 and 89, and we couldn't make it to the top. But 92 was uh, the year that we got to the top, and we kind of took a deep breath and, and kind of said, my gosh, we finally made it to the top. That was 92. And then at the end of 92, um, we lost Jimmy Key, we lost Tom Henke, David Cohn, uh, Dave Winfield um, from our club, and we had to replace them, and we were fortunate enough uh, to uh, fill uh, David Cohn's spot with Dave Stewart, and we filled uh, Winfield's spot as DH part-time outfielder with Paul Molitor. So we got very fortunate that... Um, that we picked up those two players for the '93 season, and uh, the, you know both those in, both those endings of those those games uh, were exciting. I mean, Dave Winfield in '92 getting a hit off Charlie Lebrand uh, down the left field line, and uh, we ended up scoring two runs, and, and the Braves came back and scored a run in the bottom of the inning. We ended up winning the game, and then with Joe Carter hitting the home run in '93 off of, off of Mitch Williams, uh, you know, to win that game was exciting. So we, we had two exciting, um, you know, World Series. Both, game, both series went six games. And so, uh, but still, I think 92 was probably a little sweeter because that's the first time we got there uh, and got to the World Series. You left, uh, you left Toronto after the 94 season. You go over to Baltimore uh, and you succeed Roland Heeman. And interesting, going back to the SC, Roland Heeman's son was on my USC baseball team. So I was always hearing about Roland Heeman uh, from his son. I, I think I met him on, on uh, maybe once or twice, just in passing. Um, but you go to the Baltimore Orioles, and, and you're there from 95 uh, to 98. You go to the playoffs twice, 96 and 97. Uh, Davey Johnson was at the helm in those years. Um we talk about it a lot. I, I was fortunate enough to play, you know, play for a lot of, of uh, great managers. And and we'll get to it soon. You know, uh, Lou, I mean, it, it doesn't get any. <laughs> they, they broke the mold. And we both know that when it when it comes to Lou. <laughs> Lou's probably my all time favorite uh, that I ever played for. But Davey, uh, looking back at my career, when I was a young player, I played for Davey Johnson. We didn't necessarily get along. We butted heads. He was a second baseman. I was a second baseman. Uh, but when I had a time to reflect back on my time under Davey, uh, I realized 
what he did. And he really knew how to push my buttons and get the best out of me. I didn't realize that for years later. And I remember talking to Davey and going, now I knew what you were trying to do. And he kind of looked at me with a wry smile and said, yeah, Booney, I kind of knew what I was doing. And he really did. He was probably the most skilled manager I'd ever played for. Um, How was that time for you in Baltimore? And once again, great players you had there. Palmero, Robbie came over from from Toronto. You had, obviously, Cal Ripken, who was there start to finish. Uh, But how was your time in Baltimore? It was good. You know, uh, Davey and I played together in the minor leagues in 62. In fact, uh, we we both dated uh, girls that were nurses at the particular hospital where we were. We were playing in Elmira, New York. But so I knew Davey quite well. And, uh, you know, from our playing that one season together. And uh, I almost didn't go over to Baltimore. Uh, it was kind of a funny story. We were out in uh, out in Scottsdale at the general manager's meeting. I was working for the Blue Jays, and I was out walking around uh, in the back of the Princess Hotel in, in North Scottsdale. And I ran into Davey, and I said to Davey, "What are you doing out here?" He said, uh, "He said, and I just I just got hired as a, the manager of the Orioles." I said, "Yeah, congratulations." And I said, "Well, you didn't answer my question. What are you doing out here?" He said, "I'm looking for a general manager." I said, looking for a general manager, that's kind of putting the horse before the cart. And then he said, well, he said, that's the way they kind of do business. He said, but I'm looking. He said, you interested? I said, no, I don't think so. And But anyway, uh, I turned him down two or three times. And then finally, uh, I said, okay, you know, let's do it for three years. So I went over there for, with Davey, and I was there in 96 and 97 and, uh, and in 98. And then Davey got fired after the 97 season. And uh, not by me, but by the owner. Uh, and so consequently, Ray Miller finished out the 98 season. And then I left and uh, ended up, uh, took a year off and then went to Seattle and uh, for the 2000 season. Why do you think, when you look at the game now in the landscape, 2022 and and they're kind of putting on a push right now baltimore for the first time you're seeing them in in that uh wild card race why do you think it's been so tough since the time you were there uh for baltimore to well you to know compete, I, what, 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 what was difficult i think for baltimore was the fact that um they had no consistent I, I didn't think they had a consistent game plan and uh not you can have a game plan and lay it out and you can tweak it here and there but you better have a consistent way that you're going to develop players and uh exactly you know what your parameters are and, and what your goals are and I, I didn't think that the you know, through the ownership there that we didn't have the, the game plan or we didn't have the backing to have a consistent development program and a, and a consistent game plan. So I think that's that's why, in my opinion, that's why it's taken so long. This You have to have, as I mentioned earlier in the show, I think you have to have patience and it's right now uh, with the way the franchises are being uh, you know, $2, $2 billion for the franchises, uh, people are not patient and, and they, they want it to happen right now instantaneous gratification and um, so so I think that was a problem uh, you know with, with with some of the clubs that I've been with they were looking for for something that wasn't going to happen that 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 immediately 
And at this stage of your career, you mentioned you go from there, you go to the Seattle Mariners in 2000. And, and there's kind of a theme now. And, and it's, you know, it's definitely very complimentary. But it seems like wherever Pat Gillick goes, there's success. And when Pat Gillick leaves, <laughs> there's the success kind of weans and goes away. I mean, you did it with the Blue Jays uh, when you left. It seemed like it went downhill. Same with with the Orioles. We're getting to the Mariners now. Obviously, 2000, you come in, you go to the you make that playoff run in 2000. I don't join you until 2001. But that was a that was a, uh, a team that for years had Ken Griffey and Alex and and uh, Randy Johnson. By the time I got there in 01, all those guys were gone. And there was kind of a void. They didn't know what they were doing. You were running the show. I was fortunate enough. Uh, I think we both were. It was a good match for me to come over there and – kind of that 2001 uh, and for the next two or three years, really a lot of success in Seattle had great teams, a great, uh, that team you put together, uh, man, to this day, I've never seen a bunch of guys that were that uh, cohesively uh, that unit. And there was something special about that group of guys, obviously 2001, uh, we don't finish the deal and, and we could probably talk about it forever on why we didn't finish the deal. I think, you know, players today, when we get together from that team, we talk about it and just kind of shake our heads like, uh, I don't know what happened. I, I, I don't know. I, I have a few theories. You know, we had a lot going on that year. Uh, obviously, the record, which is a little bit of a detriment. You know, I saw the Yankees get off to that start this year. And talking to my brother, I said, listen, uh, believe me, everybody in that organization, that Seattle organization, because they were starting to compare them to our team. And I said, first of all, you got no chance of winning 116. That's like a magic. That's like a fantasy. Uh, you, you went through it. I went through it. But it was kind of surreal. But I said, what's important is we'd all trade that 116 for a, for a ring. And we didn't get there. Uh, I have my theories. My theory is, you know, we had a lot of uh, interruptions. It was so much pressure on that. Are you going to win? Are you going to win? Finally, when we did it and we got the 116, it was almost like everybody said, wow, finally it's over. Oh, wait a minute. We got to go to the playoffs. I think for that Yankees series, I, we didn't play well. The Yankees didn't particularly play well. And I like to say they played a little less worse than we did. But it's almost like that team, Pat, took it for granted like well we already had won the world series it was just a matter of getting through the series we kind of <laughs> limped through the cleveland series we won but we expected to we went to the bronx and we just expected we were going to roll it out there and we were going to win again because we were so used to winning everywhere we went and i remember and i've told this story before getting on that bus after game i, I believe it was game five and we had lost and we were going home and the looks on people's faces, you know, that was the nine 11 year. A lot of, you know, uh, uh, countries going through a lot, but, but the country was going through a lot for the other teams too. So I don't use that as a, as an excuse. Um, I don't know. What, what are your thoughts on the year other than an unbelievable year that just didn't end the way we thought the script was going to end? Yeah. Well, you know, it's, yeah, I totally agree with you. I mean, um, you look at the team, the team, and I can say this now. Uh, what what kind of has changed? I think in talking about the way the baseball is played today and the way it's play, was played twenty years ago, which it is over twenty years ago that this we had one hundred sixteen wins. Is that we played as a team, and I, and now I think these days that people play more as an individual. 
because you look look at our roster and um, we had a good roster. It, it, it was well constructed, uh, and we we had you had an outstanding year. I think you had 37 home runs that year and drove in 140. And uh, you had, and other guys on the club had Edgar Martinez, John Olerudichiro had great years, but you look at our pitching staff, I mean, you got got Freddie Garcia, Aaron Seeley, Jamie Moyer, uh, Joel Panero, John Halama, uh, you know, and, and it isn't, uh, doesn't knock your socks off, but we really played um, tough, fundamental baseball. I mean, uh, we had two of the greatest utility guys, talking about utility guys, we had Javier and we had McLemore, as utility players, and they could fill any anywhere around. And we had multiple position guys. Guillen could play short or second or third, and David Bell, etc. So it was a it was a really a really good, strong, fundamental team. And uh, I, we had the right guy running it. I mean, Lou was the right guy to run the team. And um, I, I just think you know. Uh, you never know. You, just, you ran into a kind of a bump in the road when you got to New York. I mean, we had a tough series with Cleveland. We, we beat Cleveland. And then, uh, as you mentioned, we were out in five games against the Yankees. So I can't really put my finger on it. But uh, funny things happen in baseball. All of a sudden, you stop hitting there. You stop pitching, uh, you know, just for three or four days. And in the playoff, that can't happen. And uh, we just didn't play our best baseball against the Yankees. And you're right when you say Lou, he was the perfect guy for that team. It was a veteran team, uh, you know, a lot of experience on that team, and, and it kind of ran itself. And, and Lou would show up, and he was the captain of the ship. But, you know, I remember many times, you know, me pulling into the into the dugout at about 7.04 ready for that game, and Lou would look at me and say, Booney, what do we got today? I said, Lou, just sit in that seat. We'll run this ship for you. All right. <laughs> That's all he'd say. Okay. <laughs> And I remember the media asking me that year, he said, because I had played for Lou as a rookie, uh, you know, in the 92, 93, when I first came up and, you know, Lou was that fiery guy that we see throwing the bases on TV. I think he had mellowed a little bit my second time with him. But I remember the reporters coming to me and saying, Booney, it it seems like, uh, you know, this is a different Lou Pinella, a calm Lou Pinella. And I would laugh at the reporters. I said, if you can't be calm with this team, we win every single night. I said, there's no, I said, I don't think Lou's calmer. He just happens to win every single series he goes into. So I remember that, but man, I love Lou and, and uh, I'll never for, forget those teams that I played on in those early 2000s. They were a lot of fun. You know what's an interesting thing about that season? People, uh, I don't look at it. Uh, the Oakland club won 102 games that year. We won 116, but the second place team won 102. So we ended up 14 games ahead of them. But still, that's uh, I can't think back of too many clubs finishing second to win 102 ball games, but they did that year. You know, it was a it was a good division, and uh, you know I looked at our records, and we played just as well at home as we did on at both on the home at home and on the road. Our records were almost identical. So. Yeah, and I think you mentioned the division. You know, the A's were a force back then. Uh, the Angels were a force. And we, we were the class of, of baseball, the American League West, at that time in the early 2000s. The next year, we won 93 games, didn't make it. Yeah. And I think I think we followed that up in 03 with another great year, 93 games. And, and didn't exactly make it again. Exactly right. It was 91 
We won 91 in uh, 2000 and then 2001, 116, and two back-to-back 93s, and we didn't get to the playoffs in either 2002 or three. Yeah, it was unbelievable. It was just it was showed to the it just showed kind of the strength of that division at the time. Um, you move on from the Seattle Mariners. You go to the Phillies. You're gonna you're gonna take over, uh, be the general manager from '05 to '08. Um, you're taking over a team that hadn't won since basically my dad. And and uh, you know I'll tell the people out there listening to the podcast that. Uh, Pat was recently, they had a reunion back in Philadelphia, Wall of Fame, 1980s World Series Phillies team, I think was being honored when you were back there. And when you took over for the Phillies in 05, uh, they hadn't won since that team, that 1980 Phillies team. It was, right. it was the last World Series. You take over, you've got it. Uh, you go on an unbelievable run. Uh, Charlie Manuel's your skipper. Um World Series 2008. You had a great group of young players, Howard and Utley and Rollins, Burl. You brought Jamie Moyer along, that that thumber that was still getting it done. Roy Halladay, I believe, was a part of that staff. Uh, take me through the 08 season and uh, how that was for you, bringing it back. Because I know I was on that, I was on that float uh, during that parade in 1980. And, you know, I was just a young kid. I was 10 years old, I think. But I'll never forget it. And and it was the most people that I'd ever seen in my lifetime. I know those cities back there, as do you, Pat, those New Yorks, those those Philadelphias. Uh, they're crazy about their sports. And I couldn't imagine uh, the, the explosion when you guys won that, that, that 08 World Series. I know it was a pandemonium in the streets after. Take me through that 08 season. Well, the you know I, uh, Charlie Manuel. I knew Charlie uh, from Cleveland because uh, you know we when we were in Seattle, he was managing the Indians, which is now the Guardians. But uh, and so I knew Charlie. When I went over there, they thought that I was going to probably change managers. But I I was very very fortunate when I went to Philadelphia. I had I had some excellent baseball people there. Dallas Green, John Vukovic, Charlie Manuel, uh, Mike Arbuckle, who came over from the uh, came over from the Braves, uh, Ruben Amaro Jr. I mean, I couldn't ask for a better better group. I had a great group in Seattle with with Roger Youngward and Benny Looper, but. Uh, you know everything was pretty well in place, and we just we just had to. Oh uh, seven, uh, we went to we went to the playoffs and uh, and got beat out by Colorado. But oh uh, eight, you know I I I think we felt like we we were going to put it together. Everybody had been we. <laughs> Pardon me. We'd been in a, a tight race there in 07 to qualify to go to the playoffs, and we had been through it. So we were prepared for for 08, and so consequently, uh, we we just had a we had a great season, and uh, you know carried it right into the playoffs. And uh, fortunate enough that uh, you know it was kind of an odd uh, World Series. If you remember, we had one we had a game stop because of rain, and then we had another game canceled because of rain, and it was kind of a, a lull in it, and I was afraid that we were going to lose momentum uh, in that series, but we didn't, and we ended up, uh, you know, beating Tampa Bay and uh, and won the 2008 series, but we, we had a great bunch of guys, uh, you know, very similar to the, to the people that we had in Seattle, Jimmy Rollins, Utley Howard, uh, Pedro Feliz, Carlos Ruiz, Pat Burrell, 
Shane Victorino, Jason Worth. Uh, we had a, we had a good group of people along with, you know, uh, Hamels and and, uh, and I'm trying to uh, Moyer was Halliday on that staff. Joe Blanton uh, and then Brad Lidge was perfect. Uh, he had a, he had he didn't uh, blow one save the whole year in 2008. So I'm not sure if what the what what it was, but it's something like 45 for 45 or 49 for 49, something of that nature. So it it again it was a great group of people and and uh, all headed in the right direction. I, I think that's what sometimes. People will lose a little bit sight of is is the fact that the mental aspect and having a big heart and everybody pulling in the same direction that's big if you're going to be successful and play 162 games because it's a grind and there's times you're going to uh, have your ups and downs and it's it's good that you've got everybody as I said headed in the right direction and certainly we had that with a 116 club and we had it with the other clubs that won 93 games that's that's a lot of games to win. We had it with them, too. So that's important, I, I think, to, uh, to have that type of camaraderie on the club. And you're coming into the clubhouse every day and knowing, knowing what you're going to run into, and you're not going to run into any problems. I'm going to ask you that same question. 92-93, the, the difference between those World Series. It's been 15 years uh, since the last World Series ball club you were a part of. Uh, any sweeter? Just Just as rewarding, that third one. Um, just as rewarding just because uh, you know it had been really uh, as you mentioned Brett on the uh, a minute ago is that they had not won since two, uh, 1980 so it had been about it had been about 28 years uh, you know since they'd won and what I thought was amazing just to touch on that is what the, your dad's team in 1980 uh, he was he was catching Rose was at first uh, Mariano Duncan was at second, uh, Boa at short, Smitty at third, uh, I'm trying to think who's, uh, Maddox was in center, and I know Bake McBride was in right, and Luzinski was in left. But all those guys, it's 40-some years later, and all those guys are still alive. I, that's, I, I, I think that's amazing. <laughs> still but kicking. Again, it's hard to believe that um, they hadn't won in, since, you know, 1980. So, it was it was sweet to bring it back to to Philadelphia in 2008 because it had been you know they went through a couple of decades almost three decades where they uh, you know didn't have a winner so consequently uh, it, it was it was just exciting I was more excited for the the fans probably in, in 2008 um, you know whereas I was more more excited I think for the players in 92 93 I was excited for the fans and also the players but the fans in, in Philadelphia. You've got to go to Philadelphia sometime just to realize what really great fans there are. Sometimes uh, they put a knock on the Philly fans, but the Philly fans are great fans, and if you hustle and you play hard, uh, they're going to love you. 2009, you take over a different position. You're a senior advisor, and that kind of gets me into the the position of general manager. We've had a few on the program. Uh, we've had Jim Bowden. I had uh, Cashman from the Yankees on, and John Hart, another longtime general manager. And this is I have my you know I have my thoughts. Never been a general manager. Never been a manager. But your relationship. How did you approach? your relationship with the players 
I know how you approach it. I want you to tell the audience. And how do you approach your relationship with the skipper? How does that work? How, how do the fundamentals of that work in an organization? Well, I think I think that the players can uh, pretty well determine who's in charge, and it's pretty it's pretty important that the the, the players understand that the buck stops with the manager. Uh, there might be some situation, uh, a personal matter, or, or it might be a family matter of some kind that um, that the player would have to go to the general general manager. But usually, most of the the, the problems are, are are why I'm not playing, why I'm not getting enough playing time. Not I'm not not that I'm getting too much playing time, but not enough. But there's there's all those uh, situations that come up during the season. And that's why I was very fortunate, um, you know, to have a couple of guys like Lou and Charlie Manuel who could kind of handle those situations. And the players knew that if they went to one of those guys that they'd get an answer or if it was something, as, as they say, was unusual, uh, the, uh, the manager would say, well, let me just think it over. And he'd talk to me or about, uh, you know, what the request might be. So, um but, but I think that that that, that the, the manager has to to have control of the players. It has to have the rapport with the players all the time because they're dealing with each other 200 days a year. You're in spring training, probably 35, 40 days, and then you got a 162 game schedule. So you guys are living together, uh, winning together, losing together. So consequently, it's important that uh, the, the players have respect for the manager and know that the manager's making the decisions and. Uh, and and he has the the authority to do it. Uh, just talked about Philadelphia, special place, uh, special baseball town, special sports town, uh, and special to you. 2018, um, you go into the uh, Phillies Wall of Fame, uh, being that you won a World Series there. Pretty special day. Real special, just you know, really special uh, to be on the Wall of Fame. And then this year, uh, Ron Reed and Bake McBride went in, and uh, so to be up there with with Luzinski and Vukovic and Dallas Green and Paul Owens, uh, that's a real honor. The big one came in 2011. Uh, and I don't know, you know, I know as a young kid, you probably didn't set out to, to be a Hall of Famer. Uh, but it became a reality in 2011. You get that phone call. Can you ever prepare for it? And and when you got it, uh, I don't know. Take me through it. What what was that phone call? I always like to ask what that phone call was like for for the Hall of Famers that I have on. How was yours? Complete shock um, because the other people, you know, being considered because I went in as an executive uh, were George Steinbrenner and Marvin Miller, and so I didn't think that you know that I had a chance uh, to get into the Hall of Fame, you know, with those with both Marvin and, and George, who probably both of them are very deserving to, to get. In. Marvin has gotten in, but uh, you know George hasn't to this point. But both of them uh, were. <laughs> tremendous candidates to be up against and I was just when I got the call I was absolutely shocked that that I got in and uh, just thankful it happened and um, you know hopefully hopefully that uh, you know um, I'm I'm kind of tongue-tied right now thinking about it. Well, it's pretty it's pretty awesome place and and I've shared this before this story I've only been to that uh, to the Hall of Fame the the induction one time 
And I went back there and, you know, for years and years, Pat, I'd watch it on TV and I'd see the different Hall of Famers give their speech. And I'm thinking, well, there's, you know, it looks like there's a couple thousand people in the audience and probably a lot of family members and teammates and people that, you know, were close to them during their career <clears throat> until I went there, you know, uh, to see it in person. I had no idea. Um, so explain to the audience, when you get up there to, to give your speech, what you're looking at, I, I looked, you know, cause where I was up in the, I think I was in the second row and they have the ropes, but, th but then I look back and I'm thinking it, you know, I wasn't there for it, but I'm thinking what Woodstock would look like when you're up on that podium, giving the speech, explain to the audience, uh, how, how unbelievable that really is. If you've never been there in person. Yeah, there's probably, it can vary between 20 and 30,000, and, and sometimes, depending on if a Yankee or a Met go in, uh, it can even be larger than that. And, and so consequently, uh, you know, I tried. I tried to to really concentrate on on the group that was seated. As you mentioned, there's an area where there's chairs and and there's uh, people can sit down, and then there's an area where people sit on on blankets, and there's people that sit under uh, canopies to block the the sun away. And so you you look up and you look up the hills, and there's just uh, it's nothing but people. And and as they say, you can be anywhere from twenty thousand with a big day with the Yankees to fifty thousand. So I just try to concentrate and, and look at the audience and, and not really take in the whole group, because if I did, uh, I was af afraid emotionally I couldn't get through it. Who have been the biggest influences in your life? Um, pro probably uh, my, my grandparents. Um, I, my, uh, my mother and father were divorced, and uh, so I lived with my grandmother for a long time. And, and in fact, I lived with her uh, after I was out playing pro ball. So um, she had a, a big influence on my, on my life, and uh, consequently, uh, you know, I have to give her a lot of credit, uh, you know, for the things that the hard work, she always taught hard work and, and if you did hard work and put your nose to the grindstone, you're, you're going to get success. And so, uh, she said, you can't beat hard work. And so that's what I tried to do all my life. Well, Pat Gillick, it's, it's been a pleasure. It was fun catching up with you. Uh, hopefully I'll see you soon. I haven't, we, we haven't run into each other, uh, in person in a while, but it was, it was a pleasure having you on. What a great career, uh, hall of famer. And, uh, we wrap it up with what we do each and every Boone podcast at the end of the podcast. We kick it back to the voice of the podcast. And that's Dan Levy. Dan? That's going to do it for the Brett Boone podcast. My name is Dan Levy, the technical director, producer, voice of the Boone podcast. EP, executive producer, Rich Herrera, digital. All gets uploaded by Liz Landry. Do us a favor. Share the Boone podcast. Neighbors and friends and all those that love sports, make sure you subscribe never miss an episode and while you're at it give us a five-star rating and share your feelings about the podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show for all of us here on the moon podcast he is brett boone you can find him on social media at the boone 29 i'm dan levy b-a-s-s on air that is base on air all of my social medias thanks for listening we'll do it again soon have a great one